Can I have a quote here from the late author Philip Roth? And quote is, the road to hell is paved with works in progress. <laughs> yeah, it's worse than good intentions, right? Um, and was that a question? Like, it's a statement and, and a question, I guess, in that do you have any ideas on that? I know it's, it's kind of a, a thing I'm just throwing out here. But. Well, I think unfinished works are um, the, the kind of characteristic debris of the writer's life. Um, of any visionary's life. I mean, the, the discards that Leonardo da Vinci had in his studio were prodigious. And um, you, you just have a lot of ideas and you can't do them all. And one of the methods that I've developed over the years is to actually set aside a new idea and give it a two-week rest and, and check in with it in two weeks to see whether you even remember the idea uh, and, and the key to doing that as a writer is not to write it down. See, it's like a basic rule that I have is that if you have an idea, and as a writer, your immediate goal is to write it down. Get it down, because that's what writers do. If you can train your brain not to do that, you're going to have much better product in the long run. Because you're not writing every single thing down, including every bad thing. So by not writing it down, when you revisit it two weeks from now, uh, if you don't remember it, that's great. That means one lousy idea went away, as opposed to trying to do something with every single idea that you have. So I think that's part of what creative people learn is how to manage their own minds. Uh, and, and because I was an accountant's son, I long ago analyzed the creative process, the creative mind, and decided that they weren't just crazy the way a lot of people think they actually is a method to creativity. Um, and in fact, it spreads across every discipline, whether you're a physicist or a mathematician or uh, you know an inventor or a writer or an artist, the creative process has the same steps and the same general pattern. So if you can understand the process, then you aren't nearly as neurotic as you are if you don't understand it. You know, my, one of my goals was to not be crazy. Um, Salvador, Salvador Dali said one of my favorite things about this. He said, the difference between myself and a madman is that I am not mad. And, and I love that because it's, it's exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's understanding the method in your madness, as Shakespeare put it. And if you can understand that, then you don't have to be um, unhappy and neurotic in order to be a productive writer. Speaking of which, writing things down, do you make lists? I do make lists, um, but kind of limited. I mean, what I, what I have instead is a very complicated method of time management that involves a chart that I make uh, regularly. And it, the chart has room for some lists, but most of what I do is doing the same things in compartments of time that I believe are the right compartments for what I do. I know in our last interview, which was about a year, a year and a half ago, we talked about um, one of your books and you talked about time management and that, you know, creative people that get things done, they're very aware of time. So then I started to monitor myself. Am I really as aware of time as I should be? Do, do, maybe I'm not aware enough. And so it became this new thing where you were talking about before that just that most people that are very productive, they know exactly how much time something takes them. And, and I thought that was interesting because 
I thought I was aware of time, and then when I started listening to that, I realized, no, I'm actually not, because I don't know how much time, and I'm, I'm you know, and it ends up where I'm not giving myself enough of it. So can, can someone be too aware of time, though, where it becomes a hindrance? Uh, yeah, I think that's possible in today's world, especially with all the Apple watches and technology devices for keeping track of time. Um, and that's a, a whole separate subject, but it's very connected with creativity because time is all we have. I mean, there, there are two things in life you can manage. One is work and one is time. And work, uh, one of them is infinite and the other one is finite. So without even talking further about it, you think about that and realize that by definition, you cannot manage an infinite thing, right? An infinite element can't be managed, but a finite one can. But for some reason along the way, as we grow up in, in the world, we think that the wrong one is infinite and we think it's time. And it's not true. The, the only one that time is infinite for is God. Uh, for the rest of us, it's all too finite. But what is infinite is work. Work is completely infinite because good work produces more work. You know, as my son once told me, Dad, you'll never catch up. I was telling him, you know, I really hope I can catch up this weekend. And he goes, you're going to never catch up. And I, he's right, because work is infinite. If it's good work, it generates more work. If it's bad work, it generates more work. So no matter how you look at it, work is infinite. You can't manage work. You, you can only manage time. And you can manage time if you know how to compartmentalize it in a productive way that works with your particular mind. What I mean by that is that uh, I think that the first step in manage, managing time, other than keeping track of your time like you were talking about, uh, I, when I gave classes on that and when I'm consulting with individuals about their time management, I always start by having them make a weekly chart of their time. And you ask people how many hours are there in a week and they don't even know because it just never occurred to them. But there is a finite number of hours in every week and what I want to know first is what do you do with those hours? Exactly how many hours do you spend sleeping, eating, you know, walking, exercising, talking on the phone, texting, emailing, and, uh, and working on the things you're supposed to work on and doing errands and doing all the other things that you don't really want to do but you kind of have to do to be human. So once you know that, the next step is to figure out attention span. Because when I was a professor, I used to have students who would come and say they were failing history and they didn't get it because they're spending six hours a day studying history. And I go, wait a minute, six hours a day? Yeah, because I'm failing in it. I go, well, it's very possible that you're spending too much time, not too little time. Because what happens during those six hours is probably not the most productive way of studying history. And we would rearrange their patterns so that they would actually study history only one hour a day, but do it in an uninterrupted day way. And, and here's what you do during that hour, etc. And so what we're trying to figure out is what is your attention span for an individual subject? So if we know that this person can pay attention to history for one hour, and after that, 
you know, her mind starts wandering, then it's a complete waste of time, literally, to spend more than one hour studying history at a time. That's what I call a compartment of time. So if it comes to your writing, how much time can you write being fully focused and not thinking about the outside world, etc.? And that's the compartment that where your attention span is at its max. Because if you're doing anything where your attention span is not at its max, you are basically wasting your time and your energy. And those, both of those things have a negative kind of depressive effect on your motivation. They're not good. So you really want to figure out your attention span. And then you want to arrange your life in compartments of time that have to do with attention span. Uh, and when it comes to being conscious of time, one of my rules has been from the very first time I started thinking of these things when I was like 19, so I stopped wearing a watch. Because I realized that the only way I was going to be productive with my kind of interests and activities was if I lived in my own time and did not live in everybody else's time. But everywhere you look, there's a clock on the wall, there's big, big bin on the horizon, there's you know, television mon monitors with countdowns on them. There's everything out there reminding you of the world's time. And the world's time is not your time. You don't have all the time in the world. You have your own time. So I discovered a method years ago, which is simply the stopwatch method, which is that instead of using clocks, you use a stopwatch. And you tell yourself, for example, I'm going to write for an hour and a half today, no matter what. And I'm going to monitor that on a stopwatch. And I will turn the stopwatch on when I'm actually writing. And when I'm not writing, like if the phone rings and I have to take it or the house burned down and I have to deal with that, then I will turn off the stopwatch until that particular interruption is over with. And then I'll go back until I get my hour and a half on the stopwatch. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're doing it 3 p.m. or 3 a.m. or 8 p.m., etc as long as you get that hour and a half on the stopwatch, you're, uh, you know, you're in good shape. So sometimes I have three or four stopwatches around depending on what project I'm applying them to. And of course I've got my computer stopwatch and I rarely look at the time except if there's an appointment or something that I have to be aware of because I'm really focused on, you know, my time, which is the stopwatch's time and that's what I need to be focused on if I want to you know, be in that unique category of people who create things and, in my case, manage people who create things. So you mentioned a conversation that you had about work and how it's good work or bad work is never really finished. And, you know, we're in this new age of these sort of gurus and these like success articles on, you know, five tips to make you more productive, whatever. And so something David was talking about was a sustained obsession. He said that he'd read and heard from so many people that most successful people are just obsessed with their work. They're workaholics. You think that's true? Uh, there's a lot of truth in it, and I've gone through that same uh, thought process, especially when writing a, a book about the creative mind. And uh, I, I don't think that workaholics is the right word for it. I call it the type C personality. And uh, because the workaholics comes from the concept of the Cellier's concept of the type A and type B personality. And from what I can make out, the type A personality is the unhappy workaholic who can't do anything in life except work. 
and who basically is making himself and the people around him miserable because of his work, because this obsessive need to be working all the time. And then there's the type P personality who never is very well defined and, and somehow doesn't become uh, an ideal as Cellier describes him, but is somebody who's well adjusted and doesn't feel the same crazy pressures that the type A feels. And I thought, well, the problem with that theory is that it leaves out people who absolutely love their work and who are able to live you know, other full lives at the same time. Uh, and I started thinking about that and realizing there are a lot of people like that, and I call them type C's in one of my books. And the type C is the creative personality that uh, loves to work, would probably be rather be working than anything else, but isn't uh, negatively impacted by that at all. Instead, they just thrive on their work. I mean, there's an example I saw long ago is Pablo Casals, uh, the great you know cellist, uh, was so crippled with arthritis when he got to be older uh, that he had to be carried from his bed every morning to his piano bench. And because uh, he warmed up every day by playing the piano for half an hour, an hour. And, but, but he got to the point where he couldn't walk to the bench. He had to be carried, carried to the bench and then st stacked onto his bench and his arms had to be lifted onto the keyboard. And then he would slowly but surely start playing for an hour. And at the end of the hour, he got up and walked to, to, you know, to the kitchen for breakfast. Uh, and he did this every day in his last 10 years. And he was reactivating his body through the creative, you know, the creative process that he was very well in tune with. And I realized that type C personalities are people who uh, have this you know, creative affliction, uh, or whatever you call it, this gift, and, but, but understand it, as opposed to those who don't understand it and who have often tragic endings like Sylvia Plath or Hemingway or Virginia Woolf or many others in the creative world who never understand their process, who think that every time uh, they finish a book, it's the end of the world and they go into a deep depression. Uh, this is very common in the creative world is to be depressed after you finish a work. So when you really think about that, the solution is obvious. Never get to the point where you're finishing a work and that happens on the negative side for a lot of people who can never finish their book or never finish their article or never finish their poem because they're afraid of finishing, fear of finishing. And, and as a tenured professor, I was always on committees um, judging other people who couldn't finish anything. And one of my colleagues who, like me, had published many books, we were both on the same committee judging another colleague who had not finished a single book. And my colleague said to me, you know, you and I would, would write a book in the time it takes him to research um, a chapter of a book. And I said, yeah, because I always do my research last. You know, I write the book first and then do the research. And uh, so I already know it's going to end. But <laughs> to get back to this finishing idea of finishing, um, a simple solution to this postpartum depression is to, uh, when you know that you're almost done, when you know that you're in the home stretch of, of, of a book or of a screenplay or whatever it is, stop, take a day off, take two days off, 
because the energy of finishing is so huge that it will easily be recalled when you sit down again to allow it into this compartment that you're using. But take a day off instead and start your next project. Truly get into your next project because every creative person has another project that's dying to be next. So sit down and start it and go on it, do it to the point where you can't wait to go on with it. And then stop and go back and finish the project you were finishing and you'll discover that there is no, no, no more any postpartum depression because you haven't allowed it. You've simply managed the time, you know, the finite commodity at your disposal. You've managed the time so you don't have to deal with that. Because being depressed is basically most of the time a waste of time for an artist. Uh, you can allow it for a while if it gives you great ideas and deepens your pathos and the things that you need to draw on. But it's basically too much of it is a waste of time. And, you know, one of my mentors years ago, John Gardner, the novelist, said uh, people should just start doing more. It gets rid of all the moods they're having. You know, if you're in a down mood, get up and run around the block. And literally that works. I mean, if you get your body going and run around the block, it's hard to be in that kind of morbid, depressed state you were in before. Uh, so managing your moods like that is what separates a productive, happy creative person from a productive, unhappy creative person. You notice I'm not talking about the unproductive ones. That's a whole different subject. But I'm talking about people who are creatively productive and have careers. They're still divided into the unhappy ones and the happy ones. And it's a matter of understanding, I think, how your mind is working that makes you part of the happy group and you don't have to be part of the unhappy group despite a lot of uh, urban myths to the contrary that basically say the artist's got to be suffering and tortured and all of that. That's really not necessary. Well, you get more attention that way. I know Julia Cameron talks about, um, and I'm, I'm butchering this I'm sure, but that the unhappy blocked artist gets a lot of attention and pats on the back and friends around them whereas the productive happier person finds themselves sometimes alone because it's a little threatening or it's, it's just hard to, you know. Yeah, but be, being alone is wonderful. So the, <laughs> the, the, happy, un, the, the happy productive one, artist loves being alone. And uh, he loves being with people too, but loves being alone because that's truly when he's uh, are under the most command of all of his powers and facilities. When nothing can interrupt him and, and he's focused on the work, that's great. Um, and, and getting too much sympathy, I mean, as a literary manager who's managed hundreds of writers over my career, um, I think that uh, you, the, the ones who are unhappy and looking for attention, you really get tired of them fast if you're dealing with them all the time. I mean, if they're in your family and everything and you only have to see them once a week, okay, fine. If you only have to see them at Thanksgiving dinner, okay, even better. But if you're, you know, somebody who deals with them every day, sooner or later, the ones who are constantly complaining go on to your life is too short list. And those are not the ones you're looking for. And they're what I call pseudo artists who ends up, end up not being uh, productive most of the time. You know, who, who are longing to be artists, but don't have the mental discipline to, to actually do it. Going back to Philip Roth again, seeing interviews 
with him toward the later years of his life. He had moved from New York City to sort of the Connecticut woods to be left alone. And all of the journalists said, isn't it lonely here for you? And he said, it is, but I enjoy it. There's no, there's no friction, there's nothing. Because I guess, he'd, I guess it was after Portnoy's complaint or one of the, he was just receiving so much attention and he was bombarded with people's opinions. And this was just an easier way for him to continue. And I mm -hmm. know this is a, a common thing uh, of, of sort of taking yourself off the map so that you can create, but yet the loneliness was worth it versus the friction. Yeah, and obviously it worked for him because uh, other people who would go off to live in the woods end up not being productive because they, they think that's gonna solve their problem. I mean, I, I learned this the hard way because I had to finish a, a book early in my academic career and I decided I'd go to my parents' lake cottage for the summer and just sit there and finish it. And of course, I almost got nothing done that summer because one thing led to the other. People would stop by to visit because it was the lake and you know, the lawn would need attending or the cabin itself needed fixing. And I used every excuse I could possibly think of to avoid sitting down to write. Uh, this is where I worked out a lot of the, the theories that are in, in my view of creativity is that summer because pressure is what causes creativity to work best. Lack of pressure actually works against creativity. So as a producer, I'd much rather have a low budget film to deal with where every single thing that you do has to be a solution to the fact that you don't have enough money to do it. So it becomes more creative. And you tell the crew that, you know, we have to have creative solutions to these issues because money is not gonna solve this. We don't have the money. And uh, of course, studio films don't have that issue. They have endless pockets and so on. But nonetheless, you can see that if there was more discipline to them, a lot of them would be better than they are. When you see a, a film that has six or seven writers listed, you know, at the beginning as screenwriters, you know that this was just caused by money. You know, they, they didn't work with writer number three long enough. They just fired him and brought in writer number four. And that was the expensive way to do it. And, um, but there's, there's a challenge in the pressure that comes. And time pressure is the number one pressure, more than financial even that works on behalf of creativity. If you only have uh, a limited amount of time, I always found that I did my most creative work half an hour before committee meeting, because I hated committee meetings. And I still find that when I have to go to something that I'm not wild about going to, uh, I, I'm suddenly extremely creative an hour before that. And rather than resenting that, I, I, I scheduled my my creativity around that so that that's when I do it uh, whenever I can. And I think that that's what we have to learn about our minds is how to, how to tr kind of trick them into behaving the way we want them to behave, you know, to producing what we want them to produce. So you talked about the type C personality and then in your book, How to Escape Lifetime Security and Pursue Your Impossible Dream, A Guide to Transforming Your Career, is it chapter six, A Day in the Life of Type C? And I was wondering if we could talk about that. How, how is that day in the life? Is it a structured day? Is it? Well, it, it's different from, uh, you know, it's gonna be different for every type C, and it's gonna be different from, uh, from people who are not type Cs. <clears throat> and how it's different is that the type C is, has learned uh, how to arrange his day to fit his type. 
to fit his mind, uh, to fit his or her mind. Some people are night owls and some people are, you know, early birds. And the early bird writer is not going to write late at night because she's not comfortable writing late at night. She's comfortable in the morning. So if she gets up at four o'clock, she's going to give herself um, as much time as she has attention span for to do her writing in the morning, which is when I love to do mine because no one interrupts you from four to, to seven in the morning. Uh, but if you're a night owl, as Tolkien was, he wrote Lord of the Rings completely after one o'clock at night because he, he was so busy all the time before then and had a family and everything else. So he wrote in the middle of the night. And uh, sometimes he wrote all night and, and just went to, you know, went off to school uh, to teach without any sleep at all. But that was okay because he was doing what he loved. So his, his day would be arranged differently than, you know, the day of someone who's on a clock that's not their clock. Somebody who has to show up for a nine o'clock job is not on their own clock. And their day is going to be probably one that they're upset with most of the time. Whereas if you're, um, you know, if you're type C and you're in charge of your own life, you're going to arrange it around the patterns that work best for your mind. And that I think that's a crucial part of becoming a type C is having your own kind of day. Like I, I go to a lot, of, I go to meetings to sell the properties that we've developed. And uh, I don't like going to meetings because it takes a lot of time to get there. And once you're there, there's a certain amount of wasted time. And then you do it, the thing. It's always fun, you know, even though you dreaded it. So I try to arrange my day so that I'm doing something that is very productive. Like I always say, I didn't get any work done. And my wife's telling me, what are you talking about? You went to three pitch meetings at, at, you know, two, at three different networks. Yeah, I know, but I don't feel like I got any work done. I mean, that's that's just your mental view of, of things. And uh, so I, I think that everyone's type, every type C day is going to be different. And what you really need to do is, if you're interested in pursuing this for yourself, is you need to figure out what are, is your ideal day. I mean, is it important to you to go for a walk? Is it important to you to meditate? Is it important to you to spend X time on your creative work? Uh, and is it important to you to spend X time with your family and all of those things? And you sit there and rearrange your day to make that work. Uh, that's what time management is all about. And how do you do it? You know, no matter how busy you are, there are busier people. I was reading Michelle Obama's book and nobody could be busier than the President of the United States and the First Lady of the United States, but somehow they they made time for everything they needed to make time for, which tells you that there was time management at work. Because certainly if anybody had infinite things to do and infinite work to do, it would be those two. But if they can do it, you can do it too. I think um, Philip K. Dick loved to write at night and he would stay up all night. And I'm not sure if some of it was maybe chemically, chemically induced, but then when he married another wife, she wanted him to write from nine to five. She, she said, I'm very middle-class bourgeois, I, I like these hours. And so he eventually got his own apartment, which he called the hovel, and it was dirty, and he felt that he did his best writing when, when he wanted to in this you know, sort of dirty apartment, and it just lent to what he was doing. So it's just interesting how yeah. you know, we're, we're 
The Hubble syndrome is, is interesting <laughs> because I think every creative person can relate to that. Uh, President Obama called his the hole, and it was always a room that had to be found in any house they were in where nothing could be touched. You know, he could do whatever he wanted, and usually there were papers all over the floor and everything. Like and it was there that he finished a book or a speech and so on. And the hovel is the same idea. And I noticed that, you know, I've always been the same way. By the weekend, my office is a complete mess. There are things all over the floor. And, and then by Monday, it's all chip shape. And when you think about that, it's nothing but the externalization of the creative process. Because the creative process is making order out of chaos. You know, St. John's Gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. You know, and, and he goes on and talks about the light, let there be light, etc. So when, when the artist creates something, he is taking a bunch of little things and creating order out of them. And so the externalized version of that is, is living in a messy place and straightening it up when, as much as you have to, whenever you have to. And if there's some external force that is forcing you to straighten it up, <clears throat> then that creative person is not in charge of their own life. And they, they can be. You, you can always find a way to do it. There's a touching short story by Doris Lessing called Two Room 19, I think that's the name of it, Two Rooms 16, maybe. <laughs> In any case, it's, it's one of her greatest short stories, and it's about a, a housewife who longed all of her life to have a room of her own. And, uh, and it was because she couldn't, she couldn't be herself in her family, and she couldn't do what she wanted to do, and she didn't feel free. And uh, I won't tell you how it ends, because it's not a fun ending, mm -hmm. but it's a very tragic example of what happens if you don't take charge of your own creative life. Um, interestingly enough, Tolkien wrote a very introspective piece called Leaf by Niggle. Uh, strange title, but Niggle was the name of a painter uh, who had this amazing vision of a spectacular forest. And his vision was so clear that he could see every tree in the forest clearly, every animal in the forest, every leaf on every tree in the forest. And because he was so busy, he never got around to painting more than a single leaf. That's the way the story ends up, you know, ends up. And it, it's really Tolkien's agonized argument for why he had to write in the middle of the night, because he determined that he was not going to be niggle. You know, even though he wrote something like 40 books on linguistics and different languages, and of course, Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and many other great works. He felt that he had barely gotten to one tree in his forest, um, and, and only that because he wrote all night. So that, that is a terrible thing to kind of carry around, is the, the belief that you can do amazing things, but you don't have time to do them. And the answer is, that's not right. You do have time. I mean, where did Michelangelo find his time? Where did Leonardo da Vinci find his time? You know, they all had the exact same number of hours that we have. And your job is to take your vision seriously and find those hours to make it happen. Or someone like Alice Munro, who when she first started out was, I guess, raising four children. And she didn't want the other housewives in the neighborhood to know. 
that she was a writer because she thought she would get the weird label, which she ended up getting and she didn't care anyway. But um, I guess when you, you win a Nobel Prize, it doesn't, <laughs> takes all that away. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but she would do it when the, the children were napping. And if the other housewives knocked on the door, you know, she would put it all away. She didn't want people to know. But uh, so I, I realize that stigma is probably no longer today. No, um, it's, it's still there. Is it? Okay. Yeah, it, it's, 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 it originates in people's families. Uh, and and it's, it's when you, you, you announce to your father or your mother that you're going to be a writer or you're going to be a circus clown or you're going to be a dancer or you're going to be an actress. And uh, that is where it starts because they, you know, the, the normal response is, well, what are you going to do for a living? And uh, that haunts you. There's another book, one of my books that I talk about learning uh, as you go into the creative life, learning who your true friends are and learning who your friendly associates are because you lose most of your friendly associates when you make a decision to go from a, a rational life to a creative life. I once had a class, I gave a regular class at UCLA that was called uh, Keeping Your Spirits Up for Creative People. And one time there were a bunch of actresses in the class and I said, <coughs> at the beginning of the class, I said, let's go around the circle and everyone introduce themselves and tell me, um, tell me your name and where you're from and uh, what is the worst question that you could be asked at a bar or a cocktail party in LA and, and how do you respond to it? And one, one lady said, you know, she was from Arkansas and uh, her name was Joe. And the worst question that she had in LA was, when are you gonna go back to Arkansas and work in the post office again? Right. And I said, how do you answer that? That's terrible. And she goes, usually by bursting into tears and leaving the room. And I said, well, hopefully this class will find some help for that. The next woman said, her name was Jenny, and she was uh, from California. And uh, she said, and the worst question that I have is, what have you been in big lately that I've seen? And I said, yeah, that terrible question too. She goes, and, and I said, what is your answer? And she goes, the Pacific Ocean. And I always love that because it, it showed that here's a creative person who has figured out how to protect her mind from the inevitable things that are going to happen in the big world. People are not born with sensitivity. They don't walk out of their homes on the way to a party going, I'm going to be particularly sensitive today. And the first thing they say to an actress they meet is, what have you been in bigs that I've seen? It's not because they're mean or that they're nasty people, but maybe they are, but it's probably because they aren't being sensitive. And you having that answer instantly bonds you with them and makes them respect you for respecting yourself enough to not take their question seriously. You don't ever have to answer any question that somebody gives you unless you feel like it. Sure. So when she answers it that way, she disarms the whole situation, whereas the first girl is not doing such a good job because she shouldn't be going to parties until she can answer that question about going back to Arkansas and working for the post office. And, and that's a, another example of protecting your mind or not protecting your mind uh, and, and having the introspection to know how to deal. And, and you were talking about like whether people react, how do people react to your deciding to be creative? You know, I always say it, it's, it's like there's this guy down the street who's been painting in his garage for the last 10 years. And you know, when the neighbors are talking, they're talking about him as he's crazy. Sure. 
you know, he's a crackpot. He's been doing that for 20 years, whatever. And then one day they read in the paper that one of his paintings sold for a million dollars. And what do, they, what do they say? I always knew the guy was a genius. You know, he had to be a genius to be working that hard. But everything suddenly changes when the world accepts your creativity. But the only way you're going to get to that point is if you absolutely control what you're doing and, and believe in it yourself. And even if you don't believe in it, keep acting as though you do. In other words, you don't have to believe in things. You don't have to feel good in order to work. And you don't have to feel good in order to do good work. You can work. And normally when you work, you get rid of these feelings anyway. So this is all examples of dealing with the creative mind and how to get it to um, be your friend as opposed to be something you're scared of and don't want to take off to a cabin in the woods. Well, I noticed with The Star is Born, which is now up for an Oscar, um, we're just about a month away or so, um, that what struck me about the film was the loneliness of the creative process and the lack of people around them when they were working on things and whether it was his drinking or whatever it was, but that it was so lonely and it was just them and their, their material. Yeah, they had handlers around them and dancers and different things, but when they were home, it was, it was very lonely. And I just thought that was very interesting. Yeah, it's a kind of loneliness that you can't really describe to people who are not part of it. And uh, so after a while you stop trying to describe it, um, maybe you go to a shrink to talk to the shrink about it. One of my clients is a shrink for creative people and probably half the people in, in, the, in the Hollywood business go to him. And, uh, and they all have the same problems having to do with the unbearable uh, heaviness of what they do and the fact that uh, it, it is a lonely process that no one understands. You know, like I'm a producer and people say, what does a producer do? And I go, I have to give a like Pacific Ocean kind of answer to that because it is a long conversation and nobody understands it and nobody's really that interested anyway. So it's, it's just that's what you're dealing with in the creative world. You're trying to, to articulate things that are alien to most people who are not living creative lives. And uh, it's, it's a burden to bear, but it gets easier to bear the more, the light, the more likely you, you take it when you don't take it that heavily. When you have a dog or a cat or, you know, something that you can, that makes you feel human. If you cook, like I, I love cooking and I love playing tennis and I'm not thinking creative thoughts when I'm cooking or playing tennis. I'm just doing those things. Uh, so I think that you, you, you learn, you, you have to give yourself the chance to be with your own mind and figure it out and, and realize that, you know, you can control it. You know, I always think the creative mind has these parts to it that the artist really needs to be aware of. And, and the parts are, there's a great big bunch of it. If you imagine the mind like a big globe, there's a huge continent in the middle of it that, that I call the continent of reason. And it is all the established things in your life. It's your entire education. It's, it's your ability to tell time and how many languages you can tell time. It's even language, because if you weren't on that continent, you wouldn't need a language, right? If you weren't communicating with millions of people, you wouldn't need 
languages. So everything that's orderly is from that continent of reason. And then there's these islands all over the place that are each individual, and they don't have anything to do with the continent. And on those islands, strange things can happen. Those are the, I call the visionary islands of the mind. And the most, most people are trained uh, as they're growing up, when, they're, when their parents talk them out of being a painter and, and talk them into being a dentist, you know, or talk them out of being a ballerina and talk them into being a teller at the bank, you know, those people are trained to be members of the continent, to be good members of the society that is the continent of reason, where everything is orderly, where you show up at nine o'clock, you don't show up at 9.05, you know, if you show up at quarter to nine, that's good, but quarter after nine, that's the end of the job. So th those people are raised that way, and the artist refuses to be raised that way. He wants to be, he wants to visit all these islands, and he wants to somehow do something with those islands, and eventually he wants to introduce those islands to the continent, because it takes stuff from the continent, like language, in order to write a story. It takes stuff from the continent, like, you know, color and lines and framing to be a painter. And if you don't know those basic, you know, con conventions, you can't be a painter. But you, so you, you learn them, but you, your goal as an artist is to make them different than anything that's ever been on the continent before, right? And eventually, if you succeed, and just is jumping way ahead, then what you've done is now a part of the continent, if you're succeeded. And, and I'll ne I've never heard that put more eloquently than in a brilliant little book called Picasso by Gertrude Stein that everybody artistic should read. But one of the things she says in there is, every, everybody thought that what Pablo was seeing was different, but he was only seeing what he was seeing. He was not seeing what anyone else was seeing. He was just seeing what he was seeing. And after a while, he started painting what he was seeing and only what he was seeing. And before long, suddenly we were seeing what he was seeing. And, and that kind of explains the whole process by which an original vision gets translated into a classic. You know, Picasso is now considered a classic painter in terms of the history of art, and, and only because he saw things differently and, and had the courage and strength to convey his vision. And then finally, his vision started catching on because somebody bought a napkin for a million dollars, you know? And uh, he was no longer the crazy painter, which he was absolutely before that first cultural breakthrough, that commercial breakthrough. And uh, th that's, that's part of the excitement of it, is to see how artists change culture by sticking to their eccentric sort of anti-cultural stance. Yeah, we're talking about um, the artist is, is, is anti-cultural in the beginning because he's pursuing his own private vision. And when his private vision begins to be accepted by the larger culture, then he becomes an established artist. 
And that sounds good to the persons who live on the continent of reason, but to the artist, that becomes dangerous and, and, and fraught with peril because he was never interested in being like the people on the continent. And now he is one of those people. So what does he do? He goes through periods if he's Picasso. You know, he starts writing different kinds of books if he's a writer. Uh, and his publishers don't like that because they like him to write thrillers because they, they're part of the continent of reason. And they have, the continent of reason invented pigeonholes and niches. You know, find your niche, young man, someone once told me, find your niche because I was trying to do a magazine about dreams and the arts. And he was the editor of Psychology Today. And uh, that word niche is the continent telling you you're too far out there. You know, that's not going to work. And okay, well, we stubbornly continued, my editor, my co-editor and I, and, and we created a magazine that lasted for 10 years and published in New York and so on, but only because we ignored him telling us to find the niche. But when we found that niche, you know, we have to think of like, what are we gonna do next? And that's what Picasso has to think about. So he switches to his blue period and switches to his cubist period and so on, uh, just because he's now competing with himself. You know, his part of the culture is now earlier Picasso. And that is a tremendous burden for the successful artist to bear. Think about Stravinsky, whose greatest works were his first works. But the guy lived to be, you know, 90 years old. But the Rite of Spring and, and uh, Petrushka and the Firebird Suite were all written when he was much younger. So how does a guy like that live <coughs> through the next 40 years with great difficulty and experimentation and, and switching from composing to conducting and lots of other things. He wasn't like he didn't have a worthwhile life, but he was always nagged and haunted by the fact that his art was in a sense premature when it comes to healthy, happy, you know, mental development. <laughs> uh, this is the, kind of the issues that artists deal with, and it's why a lot of people are telling you, don't do that, just work for the post office. You know, work in a secure position. Didn't work for Bukowski. No, it didn't. He was a good friend when he was around, and uh, I he talked about hovels and chaos. I once took my my five-year-old daughter to his house to pick up something because he was speaking in a poetry series at Occidental College that I was in charge of, and <coughs> she walked into the house and she sounded at the top of her voice, "Dad, this is the filthiest house I've ever seen in my life," <laughs> and it's true. There was toilet paper on the floor. There were dirty dishes all over the floor. It was a mess, but you know, he wrote incredible poems that moved everybody. When I went to Italy as a Fulbright professor, I was surprised to learn that rather than Wallace Stevens and Hemingway, all of which I was prepared to teach in Melville, they only wanted to hear about Bukowski. His books were translated into uh, Italian, all of them, and uh, he was, you know, he was a mess. Uh, and, and he was, his personal life was, was a mess, and, uh, he kind of liked it that way. He never ran out of material to write. And he's one of the few who was able to sustain a long career without feeling uh, trapped by his previous career. He was happy kind of doing what he was doing over and over again. I was talking about publishers wanting a writer to constantly do thrillers because that's where his niche is. 
and that's where he should can do do thrillers. But the writer goes, no, I want to write mysteries now. I want to write romance. The publishers are not interested. Wait a minute, we've made six million dollars out of you as a thriller writer, and I don't know if you know you can even speak to the romance audience. Well, I'd like to try. Well, okay, then we're gonna have to use a different name. So a typical response is for an artist, even like Agatha Christie, to have four or five pen names and write under many names, Stephen King, for example, uh, because they wanna write different things. They don't wanna be uh, repetitive and force their art into a mold that is part of the continent of reason. And um, that's, I've always seen that those are the two big things going on in the artist's mind, but then there's a third thing, which I call the managing editor, which is the part of the mind that sees this whole thing. It's similar to you know meditators telling you that you there's the third eye, there's the watcher that you have to develop to see your thinking and to realize that it's not you, that there's more to you than just the thinking. Well, that's kind of what we talk about in one of my books. The managing editor is the one who says, I've got to negotiate a deal between the continent and the islands so that we can actually get this book done. Because we need things from the continent like time, which the continent's in charge of, because on the islands there is no time. Things happen all in at once and there is no beginning, middle, and end. It just everything happens at once. But on the continent, that, that's not allowed. Things have to have a beginning, a middle, and end in that order. Unlike the Italian director who said that a movie didn't have to have a beginning, middle, did have to have a beginning, middle, end, but not necessarily in that order. He was giving an island response to a continent question. And the question was, does a movie have to have a beginning, middle, and end? He goes, yes, but not in that order. And that's a, the managing editor is the part of your mind that sees this and goes, okay, we're going to negotiate. If you say I'm going to go to this cabin and write this book, no matter how long, you know, how much it takes, I'm going to stay there until it's done. The continent freaks out because it's going, well, I'm going to starve to death. Like what's going to happen if you never finish the book? What's going to happen? So, but, but the managing editor works out a deal and goes, no, we're only going to do th two hours a day, three hours a day. And then we're only going to do it for 10 weeks. And at the end of that, with that many hours, we're going to be done. And here's the path. So it could play. So the continent is allowed to relax because this intervening force has told the crazy islands that wants to write this book, you guys can come out and do this, but you can only, you're going to have this much time and blah, blah, blah within this compartment. And that's, that's what I think makes the same uh, artist as opposed to someone who's not sane, is working out deals like that with themselves. Maybe not so formally, but that, that's what they, they do. They make bargains to keep their art going. Well, in the case of Bukowski, the, the sort of slavery of his nine-to-five job, if you want to call it that, was the impetus for a lot of his stories. And it, it helped fuel him and it helped give him that chip on his shoulder and sort of put a voice to what so many people felt. Yeah. So it, it's almost as if it worked for him. Yeah, and, and Wallace Stevens, who was one of my favorite American poets, uh, and, and oddly similar to Bukowski in a very interesting ways, uh, was selling insurance all of his life. He was writing his greatest poem like Sunday morning on a train commuting from Hartford to New Haven, uh, wearing a three-piece suit because he was an insurance salesman. 
And uh, that's what he had to do. And T.S. Eliot was working as a bank teller uh, when he was writing The Wasteland. Um, so yeah, ordinary jobs can be, uh, can be used to spark creativity. And the artist, uh, like Bukowski in his later years, found himself more and more troubled when he had an unstructured life and didn't have to you know, go anywhere. Last time we visited with you, it was before the release of The Meg, I believe last summer. How has the release of the film and its success impacted your life, Ken? Well, it's, uh, you know, it, it, one answer would be not at all, um, but that would not really be a good answer, a fun, you know, a fun answer. Uh, the real answer is that it, it was disconcerting to be validated for something that I believed 22 years ago um, and, and that uh, I got a lot of other people to believe 22 years ago, including Doubleday to the tune of $2 million and Disney to the tune of a million and New Line to the tune of a million plus and so on. Uh, and then it didn't happen. And uh, suddenly, all these years later, it happens and people go, you, you must feel good to be corroborated. And I, I said, yes, I do. But the truth is, it taught me the most important lesson of all, which uh, I wrote into an essay called The Waiting Room. Uh, if I had been waiting for The Meg to happen, or for any movie that I started 20 years ago to happen, uh, I probably would be miserable, if not suicidal. But um, what you do in The Waiting Room is you do something else. That, that's how you manage your time. When, when you're waiting for something, uh, that can be annoying and, and a burden. And uh, the, what you have to do is other things. So what I did was 50 other things. As a result, 30 movies have happened and hundreds of books and a new publishing company and lots of other things. And yes, it's satisfying to see that the world uh, endorses what Steve Alton and I believed in 22 years ago, that this was you know, a hugely popular subject for a story. And all the way along, brave people, especially Bill Avery, who brought it home, uh, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, et cetera, other producers, um, they made it happen too. But it just, I guess what it shows, among other things, is that don't waste time hoping for something to happen. Do your work and then put it out in the world and let the world take care of it. That's one thing. And then uh, part of it is to trust your, the work that happened. When you, know, when you create this baby, the Meg in this case, if it's a good baby, it will survive and it will show its muscles when the time comes. Uh, maybe it's been in hiding for all these years, but suddenly it comes out and everybody knows it. That's great. But what that tells the artist, I think, is to focus on what's at hand, what's in your workshop right now and do it well. And then don't worry about things you can't control. Focus on what you can control. And I guess that's my main feeling about it, is that we did a lot of work on the Meg at the beginning. We created its shape, and it finally came out, and it did great. And am I surprised? No. I'm pleased. Um, but I'm not surprised, because I always believed it. But I am so glad I didn't hang my own personal psychology on it. Because if I had done that, I'd been, you know, locked up by now. 
like, like myself, Steve went on to write eight more books on different subjects too, um, and built a, another career around uh, his talent. And he'll continue doing that. He's learned that lesson too, that uh, it's, was it disappointing that it didn't come out back then? Well, it felt like it at the time, but in retrospect, things are meant to be. And I always say to, to writers that I manage that uh, every project has its own clock, and the only problem is you can't see the clock. So what you do is you put in the works the best you can, and then you screw the screw dry, you know the screws on the cover and send it out into the world and wish it well, and turn to your next project which hopefully you've done before you finish this what project. And uh, that's, what, that's what the creator does. They keep working on new projects. So this world didn't turn out perfectly. God creates another world. Uh, maybe it's better. How often do you create? Do I create? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm always involved in uh, at least two creative projects. Uh, I've just finished three screenplays in the last... 12 months and one book that was already published and a book that's about to be published and I'm always I'm never run out of creative things to do uh, you know that's what keeps me going is that creative juice and it's why I I'm drawn to helping other people with that creative juice because I understand it having spent my lifetime living it and kind of analyzing it if you could be remembered for one quote, what would it be? Your own quote. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I don't know. I, I see my quotes on the internet now and I, I go, well, that's good that I said that. That's, <laughs> that's good. I mean, I, I, I think that I would probably hope to be remembered for go for it and never give up. But neither of those are original. My mother is the one who told me go for it all the time and never give up, you know, was Churchill. Uh, but I think those are the things that make a, a you know, a creative writer uh, sane is sticking to those two principles. Uh, and that not, don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it or you shouldn't do it um, or even you shouldn't do it this way because if you have a clear vision of where you're going, uh, you should stick to that vision until you can't anymore. Or just do it, but Nike has Yeah, has just that do one. it. You know, Similar. You know, it's, it's funny how these, these slogans, I mean, are, are universal. They're not just about the creative world. They're, you know, athletes are extremely creative. I mean, people who break records are breaking them because of their creativity and because they too have understood their mind and they too have this kind of managing editor inside the mind that knows how to hold off the world on one side and their vision of it on another side. Uh, people say this particular high jump record can't be broken, but they believe it can. And maybe they believe it because they had a dream that they did it, or maybe they believe it because they calculated, you know, that if this and if that, then I could do it. And maybe they just believe out of sheer stubbornness. But there's only one way to test a belief in the creative world, and that is to do it, to just do it. Uh, and, and every time, it's interesting, people say this 
three minute mile couldn't be run, you know, this two minute mile, whatever. But when somebody breaks the record like that, within the next 12 months, it is matched or broken by three other people. What does that tell you? It tells you that the role of creativity in human life is to keep us moving forward <coughs> as a species. It's the creative people who have the vision to say, this could be done that hasn't been done before. This could be done better. This could be done different. And uh, we listen to that and we either believe it or we don't believe it. But at the end of the day, if it works, then suddenly everybody's doing it. And, and the continent of reason is reshaped by this eccentric little island vision that, that came out of the blue. And suddenly people believe it. I mean, nobody would have known what to make of, you know, tweets or Instagram or Facebook just a few years ago. Okay. 2008, I think, is when a lot of this really began, or earlier, slightly earlier, 2006. And now it's hard to imagine the world without it. And that's how quickly the continent gets changed by a creative change. You know, the people looking at art after Picasso can no longer see things the same way because he came along and changed our way of seeing. And uh, that, that's the beauty of being involved in the creative world. I was reading that a high school journalism teacher was teaching her students how to decipher tweets and fake news, and that's something that five years ago we, we wouldn't have even been having that conversation. So. Yeah, I have a, a really strange theory about this whole thing about fake news, <clears throat> is that, I don't even know how to say this, because uh, I, I think Trump is, is kind of a breakthrough cultural character. I, I don't have any... Uh, fond feelings for him, and I could go on and on about that, but he is an eccentric, creative person. He is the most uh, amazing producer I've ever seen uh, in my life, and I can't even imagine one more powerful than he is. Uh, a few years ago, people around the world didn't even know who he was. Uh, people in New York knew who he was, but mostly in a negative way. Uh, but in today's world, whether you're in Thailand like I was a few weeks ago, or whether you're in an island off the coast of Samoa, or in <laughs> Latvia, or Estonia, or Albania, you can't pick up a paper that doesn't have the word Trump in it. And his ability to get the media to do what he wants them to do is almost infinite. Uh, it's astonishing. And People say, well, he's a liar. But the more I hear that over the last few years, the more I start thinking what's really going on, and my wife would kill me for saying this, uh, is that he is changing or maybe awakening us to our strange views of truth. Because I don't think he knows this. I don't think it's conscious on his part. But he instinctively knows that truth is completely relative. And if a society decides that it's not relative, then that is a social decision. It's like the continent of reasoning saying, we're going to agree that this is true. But he's saying, whatever is true, the only thing that's true is what I'm saying at the moment. And that's the way I look at it. It's true. 
And he's got a lot of people who believe that, even though some of it sounds just plain crazy. But isn't that the way creative people always sound at the beginning? So I'm, I'm afraid uh, and kind of excited about the fact that we may be going into a whole new era of post-truth uh, era. I mean, no one ever quite answered Pilate's question that he asked 2,000 years ago, what is truth? Uh, but I think the, the world of Trump is a world that is getting closer to answering that than we've ever been before. Because what if we just decide that to dispense with the concept of truth? Uh, we, a lot of things would change, but they're already changing because of him. And uh, I think it's a very strange and troubling situation, but it's also kind of exhilarating because maybe it's time that we, we do have a different view of what truth is, and maybe we can learn something from the whole thing. So I don't know if this has anything to do with our, you know, with our interview, but... Well, if we look at, at, at writing and, and fake news, I mean, if you look at, is it Randolph Hearst? Or it, Rand, yeah. Randolph Hearst, I, I think he would stage different things back in the day where, you know, a woman would faint on the street and then they would write about it and it was, it was part of just generating content. The thing is, we didn't have the internet back then, so it, it wouldn't spread as fast and it couldn't create chaos in other countries or here, and then it turns yeah. out it's not even well, true. Well, when, when you look at what's happened here, um, the American people decided with their votes, um, one way or the other, I mean, I know it was the Electoral College, not the popular vote, but a lot of Americans voted for a reality show over somebody who was just a little too truthful or whatever, a little too lo logical, little too much of the continent of reason. Uh, they voted for the most entertaining of the two characters. So they voted for entertainment, basically. And, and that's scary. I mean, it's all these other actors are talking about running, and some of them already have run, and actresses, etc. And uh, the blurring of politics and entertainment is very dangerous, but what if it changes the world? And what if it changes the world for not only the worse, but what if it changes it for the better? You know, what if uh, an enlightened guy like George Clooney becomes president? Oh, that'd be nice. And he gets elected because he's George Clooney. Gets elected because he's an entertainer. You know, what about, what if a guy named like Ronald Reagan became president? <laughs> he was a great communicator, though. Yeah, well, he was a great <laughs> actor, great mm -hmm. communicator. You know, he didn't need to write his lines. You know, he, he knew how to deliver his lines. So I think all of that is very interesting. And it's, it's about, it all is about how the creative worlds intertwine with our daily existence. You know, and, and you, watch, you watch the broadcasters, and I try to watch Fox News once in a while, and I find it very difficult to watch it. But then when I come back to watch CNN or MSNBC, I realize they must find, you know, I understand how they feel that's hard to watch because both sides of the coin are manipulating views of reality to, to get messages across. And that's what writing is all about. Isn't that what creativity is all about? Like when a painter paints something like Rothbergies, who would have thought you could have painted a painting with no figures in it at all, just color? And uh, that's the world we're going through. So it's, it's kind of like we're on yet another frontier of, of the human mind's evolution. 
and uh, we'll see what happens from it. Uh, I'm afraid that certain things are going to be gone for good after this presidency. Uh, we may not ever get um, any candidate who isn't a visionary in one way or the other. And you know, Trump is a visionary even if you think his vision is dark. He clearly is a visionary. He doesn't like the way things are and he's trying to break them up. And only when things are break, broken up can they be put back together again. So he's a spoiler. And uh, the world is, you know, history is filled with spoilers and huge catastrophes and huge changes for the better have occurred because of spoilers. And uh, who knows where it's going, but I think it's interesting that the, you know, that the entertainment world being mixed with the rea world of reality is gonna make it much more challenging. And I think the internet is largely responsible for that because you know, the first thing, if you, you have a certain medical condition, you instantly Google and you, first thing you read, you know, you go, oh my God. I'm gonna but, die. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna die or I'm gonna die in this really bizarre way. And then you read something else that makes it look like everybody has this problem and it's not a big issue. And then you keep reading and you get more and more, you know, confused. And you wait, you go, wait a minute, this isn't making sense. Like everything is out there and how do you organize it? And faced with that, you know, you are facing the issue of creativity because the creator is the guy who, you know, or the girl who <laughs> looks at things and goes, this whole thing's a mess. I'm gonna make something spectacular out of it. I'm gonna make sense out of it. And I think that's why the world is getting more, you know, more and more interesting. Where it's going, I don't know, uh, you know, but it's, it, it's going to be interesting. During the, the McCarthy era, you know, many people's lives were disrupted and many people were silenced and lived in fear. And I don't know if we're in a, a, a sort of a parallel time. It's, it's not the same in terms of labeling someone a communist, but it, it seems as if it's, there's, there's some similarities there and having to be quiet about certain things. And with the McCarthy era, how did you see the evolution of film change and story? Well, because we were on the subject of Trump, and, and I'd like to say something about the McCarthy era and how it's different from our era. Because I think that the difference is that during the McCarthy era, everyone was afraid of McCarthy. Apparently, the entire Congress was afraid of him until they finally turned on him. But they were afraid of him. And so was the entertainment business. And so was, uh, were the people of the country. They, they were all more or less controlled by him. Uh, for a while and even the media was afraid of him because he didn't want they didn't want him to turn on them and that's a huge difference because in today's world the media is not afraid you know of Trump or people who support Trump the media is attacking him uh, as much as they are supporting him there's different media supporting him others attacking him and I think that's a healthier environment even though it's, it is a crazy environment. I mean, we are becoming crazier and crazier. But if you can hang on to your mental, you know, <coughs> alacrity through all of this, uh, it's a very uh, stimulating time and it's a very uh, evolutionary time where we see where things go with this. Because, you know, his attacks on the media 
have caused the media to say, well, we're not going to stop doing what we're doing. Whereas when McCarthy was attacking the media, the media was being coerced into silence some of the time. And that, that has not happened. Uh, which means that the, 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 the kind of wall between government and the people through which media operates uh, has just about disappeared in the sense that no one feels that the governors, you know, the, the people in the legislature and the White House and the Supreme Court are separated from us by this wall of respect that, that they used to be separated by, uh, this unbreachable wall. The media has gotten so powerful, partly because of the internet and, and the cell phones and all of that, that that wall is almost non-existent now. And because of that, it's, it's going to cause evolution in this country and, uh, and around the world. It's already causing you know, evolution. <coughs> we just can't define yet where it's going to go. Uh, so I think it's fascinating. And sorry that didn't answer your question exactly about McCarthy, but... So when, when, when McCarthy was, I guess he was ousted, I mean, how did it, how did it end? I think that the, that the Senate finally got tired of him and realized how dangerous he was and realized how... See, the problem was he was saying, you know, he was the head of the House Un-American Activities, so the House, House Un-American Activities Committee, you know, and if you attack him, you're un-American. But after a while, people started seeing the damage he was doing by having the power to call anybody un-American. And I think that he just was pulled down by his own, uh, he went too far and he was pulled down by his own momentum. And, and people just got fed up with him. And they saw too many people victimized by what he did. And uh, so I think it was a natural evolution, but it was certainly a painful one. And so those who were blacklisted, how did their careers then turn out once was, well, they, they were out of it until, you know, after he was no longer in power. And then they were sort of creeping back into the picture, but they were never fully exonerated until after, I think, everybody was dead, you know, because that's how long it takes for bureaucracies to change. You know, whether the bureaucracy is the Academy of Motion Pictures or whether it's the U.S. government, it's still a bureaucracy. And it takes it a while to make sure the coast's clear and make some changes. And... Uh, so I think we're, we're in very interesting times and creative people should be, you know, just sucking up all the, all, the all the facts from every direction to try to mold it into something that makes sense. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Trump era is that I can't imagine people writing um, a story about it, you know, about writing a satire about Washington anymore because it is larger than life already and that's because an entertainer took over you know an entertainer is running the picture you know running the the show and uh he he knows how to make himself bigger than life all he has to do is say a new crazy thing the next day you know we have complete peace with north korea uh, everything is settled everything is cool and iran is you know building nuclear weapons and suddenly the fact what was happening yesterday with his being accused of this and that, people, it's not on people's mind because the media is controlled by him saying this new thing 
and they drop the old thing. They don't drop it completely, but it goes down the shelf to where it's not as important. And because of that, it's very hard to write about him in any way that isn't. I mean, I find myself, much as I love The New Yorker, find getting bored writing, reading the anti-Trump stories because what else can you say? What else can you say? It's, it, it is a reality show that we're all kind of glued to, but um, it's entertainment. And un, fortunately or unfortunately, it is changing the shape of American life. Uh, and where it goes is up to the people of the United States. Like, what are we going to do at the next election? And, you know, at this last election, people decided they wanted a change, but not as big a change as could have happened. Well, then you throw the Cambridge Analytica monkey wrench. And if, if we think that that is true, then how, easy, how easily led are we? If, if all that is true, if we were somehow blindsided by messages and people knowing our sort of emotional pulls and then trying to play to that? And how, what's the question? I'm not sure there's a question, it's just a statement. Yeah, yeah and I think it's, it's already happening because Facebook already knows all that stuff. Google already knows it all. I mean, Google knows when you've got a cold because you, you know, you, you Google what's the best cure for a cold today. And, and they know that you've got a cold. In fact, there's a study that's shown that they can predict how many people in a city like Chicago have a cold right now simply by what people Google. And they keep track of it. They keep track of it all, mostly with our permission. Well, there's voice-activated ads as well. Yeah. So you could be talking about kitty litter, and then the next thing you know, you're bombarded with ads for, for you know, cat products. Yeah, and it's now, it's global, which is interesting. I mean, I, we just got back from Japan and Thailand, and suddenly I'm getting ads from Thailand and Japan and, and I don't know why, I guess, I guess I went on the internet in those countries, right? So now I'm, you know, they're bombarding me with uh, spam. And although that's very annoying, it's also very interesting and exciting to think that we are really becoming that global that, uh, and that wired into one big global brain. You know, there, years ago, a, a Jesuit philosopher named Teilhard de Chardin wrote a book called The Omega Point, and in it, he predicted that human race was heading for the omega point. And that point, he said, was uh, a point when we are omnipresent, we are omniscient, and therefore we are omnipowerful, all-powerful, which are the three characteristics that Thomas Aquinas defined as the characteristics of God. And omniscience means we know everything that's going on. Well, we're not quite there yet, but we're pretty dang close, right? Because people are sending us videos from South Sea Islands and from Sakhalin, north of Russia, and from the South Pole and the North Pole. And we're omnipresent because we can be in the streets of Iran during a revolution. You know, we can be in the Tiananmen Square, et cetera. And, and power comes directly from that. Look at this girl who escaped Saudi Arabia and went to a hotel room when she was about to be taken into custody by the country she was in and just tweeted until the country was forced to, to take her to a safe place and to avoid returning her to Saudi Arabia. This, was, this is power. 
And she had this power in her hand, and she knew how to use this power. And, and this will become more and more frequent. I mean, it is already everywhere, but next generation will have it down to a complete science of how to use this power to change the world. And, uh, you know, Teilhard de Chardin was excommunicated by the Catholic Church because of this book, because he was basically saying that we were evolving toward godhood. That, after all, why wouldn't we be doing that since it says in Genesis that God created us in his image and likeness? So if that's true, why wouldn't we be evolving toward being like him or her, right? Why not? And uh, the church excommunicated him because that was not a good thing to say as far as they are concerned. But, of course, he's now massively respected even in the Vatican for his predictions. He wrote all of this in 1910 before, before radio had taken off, but television was, you know, just a, a, an ion in the mind of somebody. And uh, social networking and all of that was not yet conceived, but he predicted it all. He predicted that all people would be in simultaneous communication with all other people and that the world would, become, would form a single consciousness. And uh, the interesting thing about how creativity fits into a global consciousness is that if creativity is not nurtured, uh, that global consciousness will have no form other than what, what the media give it. And the media are completely untrustworthy for a single reason. Their attention span is microscopic. It changes on a whim. Somebody important dies, and suddenly we're no longer worried about this case going through the Supreme Court. For three days, you know, we cover McCain's funeral. And uh, that's a little strange when you think about it. When you think about reality, like what's more important, this particular bill that means something for millions of people, or watching every moment of a senator's funeral or a president's funeral, well, that is a me media decision is not based on any deep human reality. It's based on sponsorship. It's based on what they can get people to pay them money to run, and that's what they do. So if it wasn't for the creative people, we wouldn't have you know, a source that wasn't based on nothing but immediate uh, you know, feedback of, of what we need to keep this channel open, to keep CBS going. We have to do this programming and not this programming. Whereas the creative person is like, what? It's got nothing to do with me. You know, this person is involved in making statues out of paper and, you know, probably doesn't even know what's going on in the world half the time. So creativity is more important than ever was because it's the different part of us. It's the part that maybe foresees the future and gives us a better future to go to, toward, or a worse one, because it does, <coughs> it does us a huge service when it gives us a dystopian view of the future, because maybe that'll warn us from not going in that direction. I remember reviewing some of uh, science fiction books years ago for the LA Times, and some of them were predicting the, 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 you know, the weather changes that we're going through now and what could happen to the world. And uh, I'd like to think that a lot of the legislation that's occurred over the last 30 years was planted by some of these creative visionaries saying this could happen. Uh, and, you know, why people can say it's not happening 
is simply because they don't, a lot of people don't understand the importance of truth. And that's, that's what I think we're drifting into is a world where truth, imagine if the media were in charge of truth because everybody has an opposite view of it. I mean, one of the things that's most annoying in today's world is watching a panel of people arguing on television because they're not listening to each other and they're all making interesting points, but there is no dialogue. You know, there's no exchange. There's no move forward from this conversation, which is what dialogue used to mean. Two things coming together for the purpose of moving forward. And we're not living in that world right now, except in the creative path when a novel is written or a great painting is unveiled or a statue is unveiled that makes us look at everything differently. What are three rules that someone needs to know about screenwriting? Uh, well, three rules. I mean, that's just uh, an arbitrary number, but let's, let's go with it. Uh, I think the first thing that a screenwriter needs to know is uh, everything has to be connected to everything else. Uh, that's the biggest difference between a screenplay and a novel, in my mind, is that uh, in a novel you can get away with saying something on page one that doesn't connect directly to something on page 158 and so on. But anything you say in a screenplay has to connect to everything else you say in a screenplay. If it doesn't, the audience is going to go, you know what I don't get is why that guy was wearing a red baseball cap in the first scene and then in the fourth scene he was wearing a blue baseball cap. And then after that he wasn't wearing a baseball cap. Honest to God, that's the kind of thing that people say when they're having a drink or coffee after a movie, right? So every single thing has to connect with everything else. It, it's much more challenging because it's almost like building a building where if one thing isn't connected properly, the whole building could collapse. So I think that's the first thing a screenwriter has to know. And I think the second thing is screenwriters should know is that <clears throat> chronological order and logical order and psychological order have absolutely nothing to do with it. The only thing that matters is dramatic order. That That's all the audience cares about. If you hook us properly, it doesn't matter where we go in the story after that hook because we'll figure it out. We'll be so hooked that we will figure it out. You don't have to even say 10 years later or five years earlier or whatever. You can help to say that maybe, but you don't have to because we're not stupid, you know, and that's the third thing. The audience is the main character in the story, not the characters. And pleasing the audience is what made the great directors, what makes them great, is they know what the audience is waiting for. Um, and the birds, you know, like one of my favorite examples, Alfred Hitchcock um, has, uh, what's her name, Tippi Hedren, walking up the creaky wooden steps to the attic because she hears a noise in the attic and <clears throat> she's wearing underwear because women are always wearing underwear in the last scenes of, you know, usually white underwear. Right. The last scenes of a horror film like Sigourney Weaver and Alien. <laughs> um, so she's going up there despite the fact that she's locked in this house alone because she's afraid of the birds who have like tried to get in through the windows, whose beaks, you know, come through the windows. So why in the world would she go up those steps? You know, she, why would she do that? So if you start thinking about character logic or, you know, psychological order, 
you don't get the whole thing. You know, wh what is wrong with her? This is what you're thinking. You, the audience, as you're watching this. And she gets halfway up the steps and the noise gets worse. And she stops and listens to the noise. And why is she stopping? Well, th there's a real good reason she's stopping. She's stopping because we need time. The audience needs time to catch up with the story. Because we need to remind ourselves, we need to first say all these things about how stupid she is and why isn't she wearing clothes and why doesn't she test the flashlight that she got from behind the couch. She doesn't even turn it on, she's just got it. And of course, at the top of the steps, it's not gonna work. But that's typical. And we're going through all this in our heads. But when she stops on the last step before she goes to the door, we're suddenly, all of our inner dialogue has stopped and we're going, okay, actually I paid $22 to get you know, scared out of my mind and that's where we are now. She's gonna open this door and I'm gonna be scared. And when you're ready for that, then she can open the door. But a person who didn't understand that the audience is the most important character in the story would have her walk up the steps, would maybe have her test the flashlight, would have a whole different way of doing it but everything that a good director does is based on the audience, not based on the characters or, or what happens logically in the next order. It's based on what the audience is paid for. What are you here for? And am I gonna lose you or not? Because on that middle step where she stops, you wanna leave the theater? You know, I, this is the last time to come one of these stupid movies, it's really, but okay, get up and leave. But if you're still there, then she goes up another couple steps because he knows exactly what's going through your mind and his job is to get you to that point where your mind is blank and you're just waiting to be scared because that's what you paid for. And that's what I mean by, you know, the, the, it's called the, log the psychology of the audience. That is the most important part of, I think, screenwriting is knowing that. Like, what does the audience want to see here? Not what, not what do I have to do first and <clears throat> what do I have to expose first? What kind of exposition do I need? It's like, how can I grab the audience by the throat and, and never let, you know, let go of it? What's the formula for writing a great story? I think that the, the, a great story starts with finding a, a character in a strange situation and working that character out of that situation. And uh, Faulkner said that that's the way his novel started, is that a, a character haunted him, and he allowed it to haunt him uh, until he'd answered, until, until questions started coming up. And he gave the example of, you know, a novel I wrote once started with a girl sitting in a tree with muddy underpants, and her knees were bruised, and she's looking in the window of the house from the tree, and she's crying. And he said, so I started asking questions about it, like, why were her knees bruised? Well, no, why were her knees not bruised? They were not bruised. And it's because she climbed this tree since she was little and didn't have any problem climbing the tree. But why were her pants dirty? Well, because her brother pushed her in the creek, and that's why she ran home. And why was she looking in the window? Because she was told not to come in the house. What was she looking at in the window? Well, it was the funeral of her grandfather and so on. And, and when he had all those questions 
asked, he could then answer those questions. And the, the thing about Faulkner that kind of illustrates my view of creativity is that he didn't write this down. You know, I always say that if you trust your mind, the story will form itself in your mind. The minute you start writing it down, you're interfering with your mind because you're now dealing with pieces of paper and we start feeling possessive about pieces of paper and we want to do something with them. We want to put them in order. But what if one of these pieces of paper isn't a good one at all? Well, he'll forget that. He'll forget the thing about her knees, you know, for example, if that's not a good one. But he leaves it all in his mind because that way it's free to form, almost like an embryo, any way it wants to form. And once it's fully formed, then you sit down and write it out. Um, I always said people will never have writer's block at all if they simply never sit down to write until they know, until they know what they're going to write when they sit down. And if you know that in advance, then you just start dashing it out. That's why you're, you limit your time, 45 minutes, an hour. And at the end of it, you can't wait to write more. Perfect. Now go to tomorrow and do it then because that energy will be there already. Whereas if you sort of run out of things to write, you've misused your time management, you know? So I think that that's how a story starts is by some character that haunts you until you have to write about it. And then you go and apply all the other rules about storytelling on top of that. But basically it starts with a character. And no matter how great a writer you are, if you don't have a, an intriguing character at the heart of it, um, it doesn't matter because you're not going to hold your reader. You're not going to hold your audience. The audience is, wants to see people. What's your process for developing characters? How do you go about it? Well, a character kind of develops itself and what you need to, so basically what you do when you're dealing with that is you're kind of like a checklist. Uh, rather than you're developing the character, you let the, develop it, the character develop himself, but you, you say, you know, what, she has to have the, the following thing. She has to have, what's her problem, you know, for example. Is that clear? Because if that's not clear, your story's not going to hook the audience. Um, and what's her, you know, what's her problem interfering with? I call this mission in life. Like usually it's her motivation in the story, her problem is interfering with her mission in life. You know, she's somebody who wants to become a nurse, but um, something violent happens in the opening scene that seems to uh, make her, if you want to save this person, you have to do something violent back. <coughs> and therefore her motivation, if she's going to save this person, interferes with her mission. Those are two kind of, part of parts of the checklist. And um, you go on to talk about how does she change? This is called her arc, you know, what is the arc of her change? How is she different at the end of the story? Because a lot of times we are covering stories, you know, that are submitted to us and we go, well, you know, the characters don't change. She's exactly the way she was at the end as she is at the beginning. So why do we, we, we don't get off on that. You know, we don't, we're not satisfied by a story where the characters don't change. So these are kinds of checklists that you apply to characters once you get, get them going starting with that intriguing situation and then adding along the way to uh, 
you know, by, by just checking them against traditional characters that work well. Do you think the notion of the anti-hero has become stronger in our culture now? Yeah, I think that, you know, the anti-hero has been around for a hundred years or more. Um, maybe longer than that, actually. Maybe all the way back to the Odyssey. Because maybe Ulysses is kind of a, an anti-hero. He's, uh, most of the time he's lying and he'll avoid a fight by telling the story that disarms the fight, although he gets in a few fights, but nonetheless, most of the time, <laughs> he's kind of an anti-hero that way uh, because his purpose is, his mission, you know, is to get home. And it's not to just defeat this person, defeat this person. So he chooses his battles. And I think an anti-hero has been with us forever and it will be. I mean, characters in, you know, in a lot of TV series like Breaking Bad, you know, definitely an anti-hero, right? In Ozarks, I mean, I think that anti-heroes are all around us and one of the things that kind of we don't notice is that over the years, the audience starts preferring anti-heroes on one, you know, one part of the audience anyway, prefers them to heroes. And they are therefore <coughs> so familiar to us that we, we don't even notice that they're anti-heroes anymore. Uh, the other part of the audience, I guess the younger part, that's interesting too, because it is, I think a younger need prefers heroes over overt heroes, Iron Man and you know Spider-Man and all of that. But I think as people get older and more experienced uh, of the complications of life, they start realizing that uh, what's more interesting to them is an ordinary woman, you know, working at the post office becomes a hero um, against her will because she she doesn't have a better choice. Uh, and that a lot of people can relate to. I think the older you get, the more you can relate to that. Um, it's easier to relate to heroes when you're younger and still think you can conquer the world. Uh, so I, I think there's you know, ample room for both. And one of the things that people don't think about is the fact that <laughs> we have so many channels now, so many ways in which stories get to us in today's world that um, we are uh, hugely sensitive to little story cues that make us instantly decide whether we want to see a story or not. You know, take, take the remote that allows you to fast forward. You know, you might catch the beginning of a commercial by mistake because you didn't fast forward through it. But if, if even a second of it catches your attention, you might watch the whole commercial, which is a story, right? But, or you might fast forward because it didn't catch your attention. And just the sophistication it takes for a person to do that indicates how tuned in we are to stories. You know, like you, you turn on, you're, you're surfing the channels and you run across a news bit and you hear a couple of words and you go to the next channel because I don't want to hear that story again. I've heard it, I've heard it enough. Or I, I can't stand this guy's story. You know, I always thought the most typical human question, most characteristic human question is, what is your story? And if we, if we face people from you know, another planet, that would be our first question. It would be their first question, unless they already knew our story. <coughs> but in our case, we'd want to know, what is your story? And first question on a date, right? Like you, you, go on, you finally agree to go on a date because you want to know, like, what is your story? And after the date, you go, you know, I didn't like her story. Just didn't like her. 
Didn't like her story, didn't get it. What happens with the jury? You know, the two attorneys telling stories, the jury has to decide which, which of the two stories do they buy, which do they, they don't buy. So the fact that we're just surrounded by stories, I think uh, means that storytelling is probably the number one human science that everyone needs to learn and know. And the more you know it, the better you are. I mean, you can tell a story in, you know, in a couple of lines. Like one of the <laughs> shortest stories in American literature is Richard Rodigan's, I think it was called uh, uh, The Scarlatti Tilt. And it goes like this. Have you tried living in a one-room apartment with a man who's just learning to play the viola? That's what she asked the police when she handed them the empty revolver. You know, the whole story is there, right? And uh, one of my favorite jokes is, uh, I want to die peacefully in my sleep, like my grandfather, and not like the passengers in his car, in the car he was driving. You know, so there's a, a three-act story in one sentence, and, you know, you get it. You don't have to tell a 20-minute joke to get the point across. And jokes, so jokes are stories, commercials are stories, songs are stories, and songs become hugely popular because they tell a story that millions of people are relating to at that moment in time. Uh, so it's very exciting to be, you know, in this world of storytelling and, and seeing masters of it, you know, coming along. What about the artist as the anti-hero, whether it's the writer, the musician, the filmmaker? where their own backstory makes them the anti-hero. And so maybe people gravitate toward their work more if they knew they had more of a cookie-cutter existence and they write this great thing. Well, okay. Yeah, he had a charm life. It was easy for him. But if somebody has more of a, an anti-hero sort of art to their own life and they're putting out work, do you think people gravitate toward them more? <laughs> You know, I really don't get your question. Oh, okay. It, it's very esoteric, and it feels like you're in a graduate seminar, and, oh, no. and I'm okay. going to fail because no, I, no. I didn't even get it. Oh, okay. I, all I can think of it is portrait of, a, of the artist as a young man. Um, but yeah, try it again. Okay, sorry. I think it's my San Francisco influence is, is seeping out. Sorry. Someone like a John Lennon, okay. We know he had his own troubles. He had his troubles with the government. He had different things going on, turbulent love affairs, different things. But it made him more interesting. Would we have been as drawn to him? Absolutely. I don't think, I mean, that's really his kind of post story in a sense because we didn't know who the Beatles were at the beginning, right? We didn't have any idea who they were. We just fell in love with their music. And uh, did, did it make them more interesting? when we started finding out that they had lives and crazy girlfriends and, you know, uh, feelings about the government. Uh, no, actually, it made them more human, and which is not necessarily a good thing for an artist. You know, the, the, in the tradition of the Catholic Church, artists could say they were divinely inspired, and uh, that was cool. I mean, that was really good PR. That was like very good spin to have, uh, but when you found out that they really weren't divinely inspired or that they were inspired by the devil, and that could be a good spin too. But it, what, what happens is that when a piece of art catches you, it catches you, I think, completely separate from its maker uh, because it's, it's like a living thing that suddenly, you know, exists. 
And I'll never forget my first reaction to yesterday, you know, that amazing song by Paul McCarthy, I think, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know who wrote it. It's like the minute you finish hearing the song, you go, that song always existed. I've never heard it before. And they say it was just released, but that is an eternal song. And, and that's the power of a work of art because it's, it is now part of, you know, it's alive. It, it will go on living for some time. We don't know how long, but some time. And uh, that, when you think about it, I don't, has very little to do with the artist, very little to do with your knowledge of the artist. And when you start knowing things about the artist, it starts a bit deflating your view of the art. Uh, it's funny because I used to run a poetry series at Occidental College and I could invite all my favorite poets like Bukowski to my series. And uh, I learned that that was a two-edged sword. In some cases, I loved it, like Bukowski, but in other cases, I won't mention, um, <laughs> when I discovered that the guy is just a, a drunken, miserable, egocentric guy who, who has all these prima donna needs and so on, and he's just a poet, you know, coming to read at a college. <laughs> I couldn't read his poetry the same way anymore. And I thought, you know, thank God I didn't invite, you know, some really favorite poets of mine that I hadn't invited yet, because I don't want to find out what they're like. Um, and that's kind of the way I feel about it. It's like the artist and his work are two separate things. If you create a great work, it goes its own route. And knowing about him is, you know, Maybe it's a plus, maybe it's a minus, but in any case, if I had to choose, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. And I don't believe at all in the kind of academic approach that says you have to understand the artist in order to understand the art. I don't really think that's true. I think you have to understand the, the society that the art appears in before you can understand the art. But I don't think you can understand, you know, you need to understand the artist. And I also have a real hard time dealing with okay, let's revise the past and say that all of Woody Allen's films are forbidden because he's a creep. Um, you know, I, I just have a real problem with that because those films live on their own, in my opinion, and uh, have nothing to do with, with Woody Allen anymore. He created them. Um, and I, I think that's true all the way back to the beginning of time is that uh, we don't have to know who Homer is in order to understand the power of the Iliad or the Odyssey. You know, as, as some professor said years ago, the Iliad and the Odyssey were not written by Homer, but by someone else with the same name, you know, or the Shakespeare controversy. Like, who cares who, who Shakespeare was? His plays are amazing. And uh, yeah, it's curious to know more about him, but nothing I could learn about Shakespeare would change my mind about his plays. Um, I might change my mind about his plays based on something else, but not on what I knew about the artist. So that's how I feel about, you know, learning about the artist. I don't think we need to. You don't think it romant romanticizes who they are? Let's take someone like a Marvin Gaye, and you, and you hear his stories, and he was on top for a while, he wasn't, and he went away, I guess, to Europe, or, or forget where he went, then he came back and was starting to get his career back, and then tragedy ensues. So does that make us more attracted to his work? Not me. No? <laughs> no. I mean, it might make me curious enough to look at it, but then when I do, let's say I've never heard his work before, right? And I, I then go listen to it because I heard something. 
I, first of all, I find it hard to listen to it objectively, and therefore I kind of resent that this is the way I came to him. Hmm. You know, and, and let's say, you know, Rainier Marie Rilke is a poet I love. Like I learned something about him and I go read his poems and I read it now through the lens of what I learned about him. And I don't like that way. I, I like to look at the work of art itself. And I used to teach a course in which I showed, you know, examples of works of art and asked the class what they thought they were worth. And I showed old Babylonian uh, statues along with electrical circuitry and along with, you know, strange mix of images in a slideshow. And it was very interesting to see what the class reactions were to something they knew nothing about, nothing. Because then during the rest of the course, it was about learning about these different things. Which one was ancient, which one was now, which was a work of art on purpose, which one is just interesting looking. And uh, artists, it, it really comes down to uh, artists what people agree is art. And the purity of that is why I think create, create, creative people are superior in a strange way to the media because that's just a pure thing, like you created this, is it, is it something people embrace or not? If they do, then, you know, it's very, very interesting. You know, it's, it's a successful work of art. I, I'm not saying a work of art has to be successful because some works of art are not yet successful. Like Moby Dick didn't sell more than, I think, 12 copies during Melville's life. And then 20 years after he died, it became a bestseller. Uh, and that's because the world of 1906, when it became a bestseller, was ready for it. You know, it was right in that world, and it wasn't ready yet for it in Melville's world. But it was a work of art even before that. Some people recognized that and saw it that way. So, I mean, I, uh, we could go on about this forever, but I, I, I don't like the what I call the biographical uh, fallacy of having to know about the artist. In fact, in fact I think it's a deterrent. And therefore, it makes it very clear to me that when people are trying to reject a person's art, you know, career of art because he did something bad, um, that just seems nonsense to me. Like to me, artists are kind of sacred, and even priests do bad things, right? But they're still supposedly sacred, and uh, we're just living in this post-truth world where everything you say is fraught with difficulty because you're going to offend somebody no matter what. Um, <clears throat> and I think we need to get by that so we can keep talking because otherwise we're all going to lapse into kind of terminal silence. Well, today's Esquire, or today's Twitter sort of brouhaha was about the Esquire cover, which, and I'm butchering what it was about, but the life of sort of the white middle-class male teen in the age of social media. And it shows a young boy in a, a room that, you know, looks like a middle-class home or whatever. Okay, that's fine. But I guess then, yes, we're leaving out many people, women included, whatever. I'm not totally offended by it. If we figure out a certain group of people's thoughts, motivations, whatever, I, then maybe we can figure out other things and, and to have a dialogue about it. But, I mean, people were very upset over it. And, and so we, we're in this new age where somebody's upset about something every day and has got to... Yeah, but here, here's the thing that everybody, you know, people are upset all the time, but the reason it feels that way to us <laughs> is because of social media and communications. 
you know, this, I mean, sure, it's always been that way from the beginning of time. People are upset all the time about everything. But we didn't know that, you know? It, it took letters months and months to get across the oceans, right? And before that, there weren't even letters. How, and how much upset can you show in a smoke signal, right? <laughs> but in today's world, every little upset gets tweeted, you know, gets emailed, gets texted, and people are upset all the time. So we are in a very challenging frontier of communication where we have to learn how to continue talking given the fact that every single word you choose can be objected to by somebody. You know, I, I, somebody, one of my apprentices read a screenplay the other day and, and, and said she absolutely loved it, but you must take out the word raping on page 96 because when raping is used in a non-sexual way to say the raping of Inca civilization, for example, you are going to terribly hurt somebody in the audience who has experienced it on a personal level. And uh, truthfully, you know, the screenplay was written 10 years ago before the Me Too movement and that particular sensitivity came to the fore. And but we're, we're at the point where there isn't a word anyone could say that wouldn't upset somebody somewhere. And Thank God for comedians because they they have a way of turning that into fun, you know, for us all. Thank God. But uh, we all need to deal with that because otherwise we will lapse into silence or we will lapse into diatribes, which is what's going on now, where all we do is yell at each other and we don't really listen because we know we can't actually talk. You know, three people can't talk. Two people can possibly talk. I find with you know my friends like you go with three people, gotta be kind of careful. Four people for sure. Two people can actually talk, even if they're violently opposed to each other. But uh, we're losing the ability to communicate because you know people say I was really offended by the tone of your email. What? <laughs> the tone of my email? Like how I'm so ingenious that I put a tone into my email. I was just like typing letters. And there were just six words, and you thought there was a tone? <laughs> well, this is the world we're living in, and it's why it's so challenging. Your thoughts on work-life balance? <laughs> well, if you don't see a difference between work and life, it's hard to figure out how to answer that question. But uh, I guess my basic view of it is that work is what you get to do when you're not living. And uh, so therefore, whenever life interrupts work, it makes me happy because, you know, grandkids are coming this weekend and what could be better. But, you know, if it weren't for work, life would just kind of swallow you up and spit you out at the end of the day. So work is what I do when I, you know, when I get to. And the balance is simply to uh, let life do what it has to do. Like the other day, one of my friend's father died, and although I didn't know him, I, I just decided I had to go to the, to the funeral, even though it was a day where I had, you know, a couple of pitches at the studios and so on, but I just drove out to, to, the, to the funeral because that's okay, and I didn't think about work <clears throat> all day, and, um, and I didn't complain, <clears throat> as I usually do, that I didn't get any work done that day. Because once in a while you do have to pay your, your regards to life and recognize that it's there. But when I think about how many people <clears throat> say they want to work uh, and do work and don't do it, 
uh, and I go, what are you doing? They go, well, life just keeps happening. And I, I don't quite understand that because that person has the same amount of time that I do and that we all do. And it's a matter of choice at a certain point. I mean, you can, I mean, we, we travel, we love to eat out, we love to do home things, we love to cook, we love to do all the things that people, a lot of people like to do. But we both, you know, my wife and I both work very hard um, because we love what we do. And um, so I don't know. I, I, it's a very interesting question, but I'd, uh, <clears throat> I'd love you to be more specific about what you mean by it. Sure. I'm thinking of um, an interview I heard with Alice Munro, and she said she felt like she had missed out on a lot of life because even though she became a writer later on in her life, I guess, um, she just had spent so much time writing. And so she was going to finally get to a point where she was going to stop. And she stopped for a year and she went right back to writing. So her feeling like maybe so much of her life had been dedicated to work and then feeling like she'd missed out on life, but then realizing that the work was really the life. I don't know. I, yeah. Maybe I'm sounding again like my, no, that, my that's, graduate. That's, that's, exactly, <laughs> that's exactly the right kind of complication when it comes to asking that question because the people who love their work, the type C personalities like Alice Monroe, uh, their life is their work. It's like a vocation. You know, it's like a calling. And if you don't do it, you're not living. Uh, when you're not doing it, uh, you are alive. But if you are not doing it on a regular basis, then you are not living your life. You're living someone else's life or you're living, you know, anyone's life. But the artist is somebody who lives their life, you know, their own specific life that, that she's shaped for herself. And, and, and that's why it's an interesting question to anybody who's involved in in creative affairs because have I ever thought that way that I'm missing out on life? You know, maybe for a total of six or seven seconds in my life, I thought that. Uh, I have had other thoughts like I could be, I could spend more time suffering. It's a strange thought, right? But I had three sisters and they all stayed in my hometown <clears throat> and I didn't. And so they did a lot of suffering with the family and plenty of occasions for it with 40 relatives around and something was always going on. And I felt like I could really be part of that. But then I, I remember very distinctly that's the reason that I wanted to leave because I didn't want to be just doing that, which I saw all around me as I was growing up. I thought, you know, nothing outside the box is happening here people are just being and there's nothing wrong with that yeah, I'm, I'm totally all in favor of you know people and families who uh, are on the phone all day with the latest person's accident or the latest person's diagnosis of this or that and what are we going to do and the plans for this and that i actually love all that stuff and when i'm there i'll be in the kitchen you know with the, mostly the women talking about this rather than the men watching a game in the, in the other room i'm torn because I love that. But I also distinctly knew that I had to get away from that, uh, that, I, that, I, that I couldn't let that consume me. Because at the end of the day, I always believed with those people who say the one thing that you can't live with at the end of the day is the things that you might have done, you know, the, wishing that you had done a lot of stuff that you didn't do. Well, I'll never have that problem. You know, all of my dreams have become uh, plans and, and, and or movies or books or trips, you know, they, 
I just always did something about them. And somehow it's all worked out. I go to family reunions, but I'm not, I'm not going to stay for four weeks. Uh, and I'm not being drawn into all that except at the big moments. And uh, maybe it's total selfishness. I think there is an element of selfishness in creativity. Um, and selfishness is, is maybe a, just an ordinary word for it, but there might be more euph euphemistic words for it. Uh, Self-determination or something. Narcissism would be the worst word for it because there are a lot of narcissists in the creative world who are mostly unbearable, I think. But um, you do have to be willing to be yourself, which a lot of people are not prepared to do. Uh, a lot of people are nervous when you do it and, and try to keep you from doing it because they really wish they could do it, but they don't have the courage to do it because there aren't any, uh, there aren't any uh, railroad tracks that mark it out clearly. You know, how are you going to get to where you're going? I don't know. Well, then that's, that's very, no. Don't you think that's very troubling? Uh, I think it's very exciting. Yeah, I don't think it's troubling. I think it's exciting. I think I can do it. And uh, that makes people nervous. You know, people who are doing their thing in a continent way, a continent of reason, traditional way, they're nervous when people are going to, live above a garage and practice, you know, the drums until they're famous. That makes them nervous. And probably, well, it should. I mean, if my own daughter had told me she wanted to be an actress, I would have, you know, no, please. I would try have not have said that directly, but I would have had the same feelings that people have. So I, I think that you, uh, you have to be willing to be yourself. And my justification or rationalization for that is that, you know, the universe, if you believe in any kind of a higher force, did create you. And if you're not doing the thing that you're dreaming of doing, then you're failing not just yourself, but the whole universe, the rest of us too. Like if you're a storyteller and that's what you're meant to be and you're not telling stories because you're afraid of this or that, um, then you failed yourself, you failed your dream, and you failed all of us to whom your story might be life-saving or the funniest story they ever heard. And you failed the universe that created you to dream about telling stories. I used to have students who would have weird things like this. I, I really want to go to junior year in Paris, but I'm, I'm afraid of feeling guilty if I do it. And I go, why would you feel guilty? Well, because my parents will have to pay for it and, and my, my brothers and sisters didn't get to do that. And, so I go, wait a minute, let me think this through with you. You're afraid of guilt, right? Okay, what is guilt? What do you mean? Well, it's, isn't guilt a kind of mental thing? Isn't it kind of imaginary? I know it's powerful, but it is imaginary, like most powerful things in human life, right? Yeah. Well, so isn't the fear of guilt also imaginary? Yeah. So either way, you're going to be dealing with an imaginary problem, right? You're going to... Go to Paris and feel guilty in the past, in the future, which is speculative anyway, or you're going to stay here and feel bad for not going. So it seems to me the choice is obvious. Go there, feel guilty if you do, and deal with it. And that kind of thinking is what makes somebody decide to break out of the pack and pursue a creative life. 
Uh, if they can't think their way through that, then they just should stay home and, you know, do the job at the grocery store, or whatever it is that that will make them feel not challenged by that. Lastly, what about the fear of, I think Norman Mailer said, fear of mediocrity. He was talking about how a lot of colleges train people to, to want sort of a mediocre existence. I'm not sure if that's true. They just maybe stability. But then there's a, a, a mediocrity with some of that. Uh, <laughs> you know, Flannery <laughs> O'Connor said that the problem isn't that colleges aren't, you know, inspiring people to become writers. The, the problem is that colleges are inspiring too many people to become mediocre writers. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether Norman Mailer was influenced by her or she was influenced by him, but um, mediocrity is a, is a retroactive judgment. It's not something you strive for, uh, right? So it's something you, if you're talking about artists, uh, he's a mediocre, mediocre artist, well, that's, you can't make that judgment until it's all done. Uh, in, in the case of Melville, for example, you can't even make it then because when it was all done, he was buried and nobody knew who he was. But then 20 years later, he's had become the greatest American novelist. Um, so what that tells you is that the artist can't think about things like that. You, you can't think about whether you're, what you're doing is excellent or not. You have to strive for excellence because if you don't strive for that, you'll never get anywhere near it but you don't judge yourself based on any of those criteria because that's not your job. Your job is to do your art and uh, do that as well as you can at the moment, the best you can at the moment, and let the world judge it or not judge it. Who cares? Your joy and your mission in life is to do the creative work, and, and that's all you have to worry about let everybody else make up their minds. And the fear of doing that, uh, I mean, the strength to do that means you've got to have a sufficiently healthy ego, not a huge ego or a little ego, which causes people to be egotistic. But you have to have a sufficiently healthy one to truly not care uh, what other people think. I, I once was getting divorced and, you know, was worried about my children and, you know, what the world would think and everything else. and. And I was standing on, talking on the phone, looking out city of LA at a million lights, right? And my uncle was saying, just remember that nobody is really thinking about you most of the time. There are some people out there who you know, know who you are. And of them, there are some who love you and there are probably some who hate you. But most of the people out there don't even know who you are. So relax, you know, and that is very relaxing is to, think that you know no matter who you are there are other people who don't know who you are uh it constantly amazes me that people today haven't heard of half the great artists of the past but so what just if you do something creative focus on that and it will make sense out of the rest of your existence and that's all anyone can really manage i think is their own existence